Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, archivist at the Ruther Library, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we talk to Jessica Levy in back in June, a PhD candidate from John Hopkins University who is currently the Jefferson Scholars Hagley Library Fellow. Her dissertation is about the intersections between race, capitalism, and the United States in Africa. She came to the Ruther Library to look at the collections of AFSCME, CBTU, UAW, and the Smith College records to learn more about how the United States labor movement became active and helped bring about the end of apartheid in South Africa. In our conversation, Ms. Levy explained who Leon Sullivan was, because I had no idea who he was, and neither did Troy. Did Troy, did you know? I sure didn't. Yeah, no no one did. No clue. I had no idea. Now we do. Um, and he's featured, he's featured really in-depthly within our dissertation, so it was really a treat to hear about this individual. Um, she also gave us a quick education on how corporations dealt with South Africa's apartheid government. And, of course, we talked about labor, didn't we, Troy? Oh, we did. Yeah, it's, this happens here at the Ruther Library. We just love talking labor. So let's hear what she had to say. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Great. Um, Pleasure to be here. How did you come across this research project? So I was actually doing research on black mayoral politics in Atlanta and was really interested in this question of black politics after the civil rights movement, what happens. And I discovered a bunch of former civil rights leaders, people like Andrew Young, um, people like Ralph Abernathy, invested in business in Africa. And so I decided to pursue that. And I discovered um, a man named Leon Howard Sullivan, who uh, sort of fit this description of somebody who uh, was very involved in the civil rights movement um, and then went on to become a, a major black business leader um, with lots of investments in the U.S. and Africa. Wow, so so how come I've never heard of Leon Sullivan? You know, that's a funny story. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think he's one of these people that people uh, should hear about and hopefully with uh, my book will hear about. Um, you know, he was very, very active in um, many of the events that uh, people, you know, are familiar with the civil rights movement are familiar with the 1941 March on Washington movement. He began a boycott of businesses in Philadelphia called the Selective Patronage Movement. Actually, if you're in Philadelphia, everybody's heard of Leon Sullivan. Um, he was, you know, a, a really, really key figure, especially in the movement um, to promote jobs um, and economic empowerment um, as part of the civil rights movement. So what kind of things did he do? So he, um, he or he got his start um, early on. He was very interested, actually, in juvenile delinquency, and he was always kind of very concerned about youth. Um, he uh, one of his first programs that I love actually. He ran a basketball league out of his church. He was a minister, um, and he would play basketball in college, and he. Uh, would use basketball to try to um, get youth kind of off the streets and into the church. But his major contribution um, was really, he started a job training program called Opportunities Industrialization Centers. And that provided job training um, in a variety of different fields. They worked secretarial work, garment manufacturing, gas stations, um, really sort of anything that they could partner with industry on finding jobs available um, to try to train African-Americans, the unemployed as well as the underemployed. Um, and actually not just African-Americans. The organization had people of all different backgrounds in it, actually, um, but was 
targeted towards um, towards African Americans initially. And to help to train them, to provide them with skilled positions, um, managerial positions, where they felt they could get better um, and more secure employment. Okay. And so this was about the mid-60s when this happened? Yeah. So it was ni- mid-1960s. So Sullivan was uh, interested in these things starting in the early 60s. And then the major turning point was actually the riots of the of the mid-1960s. Philadelphia had its first larger riot in 1964, um, then earlier skirmishes in 1963. And that was really the point where Sullivan um, started to get a lot of backing, first from local business leaders, and then eventually um, the United States government. Um, So OIC, Sullivan's organization, got millions of dollars through the war on poverty um, and later through various other congressional Acts. There was there are multiple Opportunities Industrialization Centers Act that provided OIC with funding to expand this program from Philadelphia into eventually seventy cities across the United States and actually later Africa. So how 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 did the how did the tie in with Africa come about? Yeah. So um, you know there's a long history of African Americans interested in um, in Africa and um, especially through the church. Um, so Sullivan, I think you know, was one of these people who helped kind of revive or continue this tradition of African-American missionaries to Africa, Um, except he, you know, was coming of age at this at this time when development when economic development was a major concern. Um, so he, you know, this, the story of the OIC story goes that a Nigerian physician was visiting Philadelphia, had heard of Leon Sullivan's job training program, and then this is shortly after independence in Nigeria, thought this, you know, would be a really, really great program to bring, bring to Africa, solicited Sullivan's, you know, advice. Sullivan was very keen on this. He, he you know, often sort of talked about his programs as not just being for the black person in the United States, but black people all over the world. And and it coincided with a time in which, you know, the U.S. government was also trying to renegotiate its relationship with Africa. Um, this is the Cold War. The Americans are, you know, are very concerned with which way these new African nations are going to go and so are increasingly providing aid. So the USAID provided the first grant to OIC to start exploring these job training programs um, in places like Nigeria, places like Togo, Kenya, Across across the continent, really. Wow. So so Sullivan is, is is increasing his presence. How did he involve more corporate businesses? Yeah. So Sullivan always was, um, even though the bulk of the funding for his organizations came from the government, was very interested in working with private business. Um, he thought that corporations could be a major source for change, for black empowerment in both the U.S. and Africa. So his organizations, um, and there are actually multiple of them, um, they often involved a sort of business council of leading um, industry leaders, people, um, representatives from companies like General Motors, IBM, Mobil. Um, and so there was a advisory council for both the United States and for Africa. And what he would do um, is often try to partner his job training program with different corporations to try to you know get a contract for his organization to be the one providing training for these corporations. So for example, um, General Motors opened up a plant in Kenya, and at that time, Leon Sullivan actually had joined the board of General Motors, and as through the parts of the negotiations for General Motors to open a plant in Nairobi, he arranged for OIC, his organization, to provide job training and to train local Kenyans to then that would then go work in the GM plant. 
So he was actually on the ground in Africa, mm-hmm. seeing development of these things, working with corporations, GM being on the board. First African-American on that board? He was the first African-American on the board and the first African-American on the board of any really major Fortune 500 company. His appointment preceded a, a wave of black Americans joining the boards, um, but he was sort of the first and got a lot, a lot of publicity out of and this. And still we haven't heard of this guy. <laughs> I know, Jeez. I know. Um, what I'm getting to, though, is like, so he saw what was going on in Africa. He saw the disparity. Is this how he came up with his ideas of his principles? Um, So the Sullivan principles, um, which are a corporate code of conduct that eventually Sullivan proposes for U.S. businesses operating in South Africa, I think really emerged out of a lot of different things. I think they have remnants of kind of U.S., the way that corporations were already dealing with civil rights in the United States. So things like equal opportunity, non-segregation of the workplace, um, which is, you know, interesting difference from desegregation kind of um, implies a sort of just taking away of the signs. Things like affirmative action um, were embedded in the principles. So I actually think the principles evolve more out of the United States than Africa itself. Um, Okay. So were these principles more of a guideline? Were there any, um, I don't know, uh, regulations or oversight of these principles? Yeah. So they were a guideline. So the principles were in response to an evolving movement, uh, sanctions and divestment movement that was trying to pass sort of hard legislation to get American corporations out of South Africa due to their support for apartheid. And the Sullivan principles really were seen as this kind of private voluntary response um, that, you know, corporations said that they, you know, they could provide um, a source of change in South Africa on their own. They didn't want government oversight. They were very intentional in the meetings. Um, So these principles evolved over the course of two years through meetings between Sullivan and 12 corporate executives, and then they were later added to and changed. But in those negotiations, it was very important that the government not be able to have, that this was not a state initiative, that the government not be able to have oversight over them. That said, once they are sort of launched, um, and they're launched um, in 1977, um, this is shortly after the Soweto uprising, which was uh, sort of the big event that got the kind of brutality of, of apartheid South Africa on the, the radar of most Americans of, of the globe, and corporations are suddenly pressed to really, really act on this. Once that they are sort of launched and they get criticism for being voluntary, um, the corporations attempt to kind of uh, or they or they launch a number of oversight internal oversight organizations. So they um, actually hire an outside consultant, Andrew D. Little firm, that puts out reports on the Sullivan signatories, and they you know take statistics about how wages are improving, how many black South Africans are in particular positions. So there is an attempt to have internal accountability. They eventually also, Sullivan, and along with a number of other African-American ministers, forms their own kind of oversight committee. They go to South Africa. They observe the plants. They come out with their own reports on how the Sullivan signatories are doing. There's a whole ranking system developed. And various stakeholders are are interested in how these corporations are ranking in terms of the Sullivan principles. So they get different grades, a one, two, you know, doing satisfactory, doing poorly. And what's really interesting is to see is, is other institutional actors who have a stake in the divestment movement, uh, universities, unions, are interested in how... Um, 
how the Sullivan signatories are performing on these various reports. All right, you brought up unions. Yes. All right. <clears throat> That's why yeah. I'm here, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so actually, yeah, it's, you're here at the Ruther Library doing labor research. You're usually, do, usually doing business research and yes. business archives. So uh, how's your trip been so far exploring the, the union collections here yeah, at the Ruther? Yeah, it's been really great. So, you know, most of my research has come either through business archives or through other sort of private African-American civil rights organizations, um, African organizations. And I think, you know, a major piece that has been missing is labor. And, you know, labor um, unions were... You know, as I as I sort of had a, a suspicion, but um, through various you know newspapers, but has have been confirmed here, were really you know had their finger on the pulse of what corporations were doing in South Africa. You know, when they were following the Sullivan principles, when they were not, when they were avoiding sort of uh, oversight, when they were kind of getting away with things. Um, and so it's been it's been really useful to get their side of the story. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, we 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 do know that one of the first to ask for disinvestment from South Africa was the Polaroid company. The yes. The union saying, hey, you got to pull out of here. We can't do this anymore because of the XYZ. Steamrolled from there. CBTU sticks it up. AFSME is picking it up. But um, I remember reading one of the first big reports that came out from a, a group of, let's say, labor um, activists, um, Hollywood types, musicians mm-hmm. saying the principles are wrong. Yes, yes. And I kind of get that feeling that Sullivan didn't take it too well. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, well, so Sullivan had, um, no, he, he certainly defended the principles for most of his trajectory, although he, he did respond to pressure. Um, and it's actually really interesting to see the back and forth between critics. So, you know, actually one of the first critics, in addition to labor, there started to be a number of kind of corporate social responsibility watch groups in the 1970s. This is part of a story of um, broader groups, even outside of labor, trying to hold corporations accountable on various social issues. And, you know, initially he he defends corporations, but he also kind of, there will be these moments when he comes out and tries to put the pressure on South Africa. Um, so the early 1980s is actually one of these moments um, in particular, because that's when the labor movement in South Africa is actually picking up. And a number of critics in the United States have tapped on to the fact that the Sullivan principles do not include a, uh, a principle regarding union recognition, especially black union recognition, um, which for many, many decades was illegal in in South Africa. Um, they're basically operating underground in a way. Yeah, they're, they're, there, but... they're operating underground, but they are really sort of hindered by the apartheid system for a while. And Sullivan attempts to actually later add unions in response to these critics. Now, the original signatory principle corporations don't sign on to this. They said, you know, we signed a set of six principles and this was not one of them. Um, <laughs> so, okay, sorry. Of course. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so, yeah, there's some interesting back and forth. And eventually, Sullivan actually leaves the principles in 1987. He, he decides that divestment is the way to go at the same time, his kind of announcements, you know, he always holds on to this idea that business can be a good source uh, for change. Mm-hmm. So, um that's interesting that he then saw that side. Let's step back to the labor unions. What have you discovered about the activities, what the unions do? Usually mm-hmm. the usual things like they do the research, they educate, they mobilize. Yes. You know, in addition to kind of broadly being supportive of the divestment campaign um, and sanctions in the United States, um, which is really interesting because one of the major kind of actors that really 
end up kind of getting divestment legislation steamrolling. So there was lots of different divestment legislation in the U.S. from, you know, university institutions to cities to states to eventually getting um, national and various versions of national divestment and sanctions legislation. And the unions here have really discovered how active they are in terms of that city and state level through um, pension funds. Um, so unions as institutional investors, which is, I think, you know, not usually how we think about labor activism. We usually think about the shop floor, about, um, you know, contracts. But here, actually, unions are using their power as investors in various banks. So I found, you know, correspondence where, you know, they discover their investments are in a bank that might be giving loans to South Africa. And they say, well, how can we, um, you know, leverage this to put pressure on that bank to stop lending money to South Africa? Was this mostly um, the private unions? I mean, it was in private industry or was it AFSME and the public employees? So I think that one was I, I could be wrong. Where I think it was AFSME that was the one that had their pension funds in. Um, yeah. In a bank. The other way that labor unions are really active is they're actually in direct contact with unions in South Africa, especially when you move into the 1980s. Um, you start to get legally recognized black trade unions. Um, there's a large coalition of trade unions that comes together in South Africa called COSATU. There's also the National uh, Union of Mine Workers um, run by Cyril Ramaphosa and um you know, really what I've discovered here is is the UA, how involved the UAW um, and the AFL-CIO were in not only bringing union leaders over for training and kind of correspondence, lending symbolic uh, kind of support, but actually providing financial support to these unions, um, providing support for their families when people were locked up in jail. There was a large campaign around black uh, trade union um, activist Moses uh, Mayakiso, who was imprisoned. And, you know, basically it was the U.S., the UAW and other unions in the United States that helped to draw national attention to this and, you know, likely get him out of out of jail in South Africa. Yeah, you're going to find if you had more time here. Yeah, you would find that the unions were doing this in the 70s, bringing trade unionists into the United States to educate. They would be staying with them in the houses. And when when the, the unions would go up to South Africa membership, they would stay in their houses. Yes, it was a whole network. Um, but I, I was curious because you had, at your brown bag that you presented, you talked mm -hmm. about how the UAW was negotiating with the big three about I guess if they were going to pull out, who would take control of the plants? Yes. And the UAW is very involved with that. Yes. So that's, that's interesting. So one of the things um, and the pieces I've been trying to put together is when divestment actually occurs. So in the mid 80s, 1986, 1987, some, for some companies a little earlier than that, um, many businesses actually for various re reasons, whether it's, you know, they're actually losing money from divestment campaigns, cities that won't sign contracts with them in the U.S., um, or they've just decided that the political pressure is not worth it. They start to divest, and there's large waves of divestment. But part of the, you know, the question that a lot of the literature hasn't really reconciled with is what does divestment mean? And here, I think the labor unions are really, because of their contacts with labor in South Africa and just, you know, in general, are really kind of on this question. So for South Africans, when divestment occurs, they don't just want their jobs to go away. This has actually been the threat that business has been pushing all along that, well, if we divest, then everybody loses their jobs. No, the labor, you know, in South Africa wants to take over the factory. They, you know, they this is their opportunity. And instead, what often happens is companies like GM um, 
or or Ford will sell their stake in South Africa to another company. Um, so I th- forget if it's GM or Ford, but sells a stake to Anglo-American, which is one of the you know largest companies, the largest company in South Africa. So one of the things that then becomes a concern is all these contracts that have been negotiated. What happens to the pension funds? What happens to wages? And in many cases, the you know South African companies don't have this international incentive anymore to um, you know go by the Sullivan principles uh, to provide benefits to you know provide all these things that the American companies might have have been providing. So the UAW um, is is in correspondence um, with GM with Ford about these negotiations and about trying to get divestment to work for Black South Africans, basically. Did it work? Um, probably not. Mostly not. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it was it was it, it was the communication. It was yeah. the awareness. It was the education and the mobilization and getting people aware. And yes. that was it. I remember in the eighties. I'm dating myself, but here I am. I'm in, <laughs> yeah. I'm in college, and yes, we were yes in the quads yes. out there. Um, and we became more and more aware, and that's part of the whole program. Yes. Part. Yes. Of, uh, yes. You want the ultimate goal, but. We well, became mobilized. And we one of the mo- things they did do was they continued to put pressure on the United States government to strengthen sanctions and strengthen divestment legislation. And, you know, there was this kind of push once divestment legislation is passed, which um, the kind of most well-known divestment leg- legislation is the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act of 1986. And Reagan vetoed um, Which is Reagan vetoes and then is overridden. Yeah, so yeah, there's yeah, already, yeah, yeah. you know, administrative pushback. Um, the administration doesn't really want to, you know, have uh, sanctions and divestment. And so unions, along with the broader anti-apartheid movement in the U.S. and along with the African National Congress, are really big on pushing the U.S. government to maintain sanctions. So there are multiple moments, both through the Reagan and the Bush presidency, when the U.S. government wants to say, OK, we see significant change happening in South Africa. We're going to get rid of our sanctions legislation. And I think one of the things um, that unions and you know the broader anti-apartheid movement was successful in doing was to kind of say, no, 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 it's not time yet. We need to keep the pressure on until we, you know, we have an election date. Um, you know, people... People in South Africa remember this, but how long the actual negotiations took between when Nelson Mandela was released from jail in 1990 and the first, you know, general election in 1994. Um, and there were various moments when I think, you know, it could have turned a different way. Um, and it's really important that that pressure is sustained through the early 1990s. I find it interesting that um, in the world stage, you had South Africa happening with the awareness of the apartheid. Uh, then you had Poland Mm-hmm. raising up against the Soviet Union. And it took a decade Yeah, for really when people getting moved. I mean, South African anti-apartheid was much longer and the Polish uprisings were going on way before. But that's when we, everybody found out about it. All within this 10-year span, you would think that most of the government and business leaders would understand is like, okay, it's working here. We should work it here. But what you're describing is in South Africa, we'll stop the sanctions, but they continued the sanctions in Poland until they actually had something feasible. Yeah. And it was an interesting, this is top of my head, is an interesting contrast. But, um, sorry, I went on a tangent there. No. Anyway, how, what, what, what is, what is your end, end game here? What is the end, the end result? You know, uh, so finding out? Well, the end result is a, is a, is a book and, and really, um, you know, I think the contribution of the project, um, overall is to think about how corporate politics and black politics 
globally have shaped each other in the late 20th century. Um, so, you know, this is, I guess, the not union, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, the not yeah. union story. Um, but I think one of the things that the labor leaders, you know, and I see this here in the archive, is are get frustrated with at the end of this, you know, at this moment when um, apartheid has fallen, they've been successful with divestment legislation, Nelson Mandela is released from jail, and there seems to be this moment, um, and this happens time and time again, this happens in the United States, this happens in various parts of Africa, where um, you get these moments of uh, desegregation, decolonization, and the leadership, the black leadership that takes over, ends up partnering with business. Um, so the last kind of moment in my project is actually this moment when Nelson Mandela welcomes Coca-Cola back into South Africa. Um, and I think this really kind of sums up the phenomenon that I'm, I'm talking about. Coca-Cola was, throughout the 1980s, one of the companies that divestment activists, there's a whole kind of boycott Coke campaign, even during Nelson Mandela's 1990 trip to the United States because Coca-Cola was one of these companies that continued to get its products into South Africa, even if they didn't have a factory there, um, you know, through various uh, licensing agreements and through, you know, just the the kind of through trade, pushing uh, products over uh, over borders, continued to sell their products in South Africa. Um, and actually ended up taking a greater market share over Pepsi, who tries to hand off their factory to a bunch of black business people there, which um, kind of ends up failing. Um, so Coca-Cola, you know, is just doing very successfully. And yet Coca-Cola ends up, you know, through what they've learned about how to kind of position themselves in relation to black struggles, in relation to the anti-apartheid struggles, reaches out to the ANC at this moment and says, hey, we want to be partners. Um, they help a fund. They help uh, provide fundraising for the ANC. The ANC is in desperate need of money. You know, they've been fighting a decades-long battle against the South African government. They suddenly uh, have to transition from being a struggle uh, movement into a government in waiting. Um, they need to win an election. And really, um, you know, the way this kind of photograph of Nelson Mandela shaking hands with Carl Ware, who um, is one of the first black executives at Coca-Cola, um, kind of, I think, symbolizes the way in which corporations, through the hiring of black executives, um, are actually able to position themselves as partners in building a post-apartheid South Africa. Yeah, business is business, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So your next trip is Coca-Cola archives, huh? Uh, well, yes, Coca-Cola and Carl Wow papers. Yeah. Awesome. There you go. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, Really thank enjoyed you. it. Okay. Miss Levy was awarded the Sam Fishman Travel Grant for 2017. The Fishman Grant provides up to $1,000 to support travel to the Ruther Library to use archival records related to the American labor movement. The award is named in honor of Sam Fishman, a former UAW and Michigan AFL-CIO leader. We give out about five or six a year, so if you're interested, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. 
To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Very nice. Thank you. You're welcome. You want to do it again, or is that okay? Yep, let's do the whole thing one more time. Okay, okay.